So anyway, it's good to see you um, looking well. And I, uh, I want to thank you for your latest uh, distinguished contribution to our latest issue of Sapir. I don't know if people can see that on their screens, Israel at 75. If you look very carefully, you'll see just how beautiful um, our, our cover pages uh, are designed by a very, very talented uh, designer and illustrator named uh, Catherine, uh, Catherine Messenger. Uh, as the title suggests, this whole issue was devoted to Israel's 75th birthday, and most of the essays were began with the words, um, Israel is, uh, and then dot, dot, dot. Yours was, Israel is less fragile than we feared, more fragile than we uh, imagined. And it's a, a characteristically eloquent and exceptionally learned and thoughtful and well-balanced um, well piece, piece of, of writing. But I want to begin, if it's okay with you, with uh, something a little more contemporary, which is give us your sense from Jerusalem of where things stand in the crisis over the legislation on uh, the reform of the judiciary. What is, where are we now? We are in a bit of an of, of a hiatus, kind of it's on pause a little bit. There was a pause first because of Pesach, and then the Knesset went on recess until right after Yom Atzma'ut. And then the urgent piece of business for the Knesset became passing the budget. The vote on the budget is on Monday. And if the budget doesn't pass, the government is automatically resolved, uh, automatically dissolved. So BB has every incentive in the world to make sure that the budget gets passed. And it looks like as of today, he's managed to work something out with the Haredim and so forth. So it's a little, the whole issue of judicial reform has been a bit suspended. But that doesn't mean that things aren't happening beneath the surface that are both uh, reassuring and, and worrisome at the same time, different things. Some of them reassuring, some of them worrisome. So what's reassuring? What's reassuring is I think that something in Israeli society has been awakened or reawakened, or discovered for the first time. The sense was, I think, among many people in the administration and the government, that they don't really care that much. You know, these people, they're very happy coding, going public, having exits, and as long as we don't, you know, take that away from them, they'll be, they'll be fine. But the truth of the matter is they seem to care a great deal. And I think that when, although the, the protests are subsiding a little bit, uh, and there's a debate as to how much they're subsiding, and some people say that the numbers even though the numbers that are being reported are less than they were, they are actually lower than is being reported. Some people are saying, I have no idea what's true. When you're in the middle of it, you just can't tell how big it is. So it's actually even, even in Jerusalem where they're not nearly as big, you know, they're 13,000, 15,000, you can't really tell how far the crowd extends. And so it's really very hard to know when you're there. So that's, that's I mean, so one of the things that I think has been very heartwarming is to see the, the really overwhelming flood of caring about the country and so on and so forth. Um, it is, of course, brought around about or surfaced the tremendous divide in Israeli society, though what that divide is, is not entirely clear. It's, there's now a new wave of people saying it's not really Mizrahi Ashkenazi. That was the hoax people are saying, and we can come back to that if you want later. Um, the main thing that Mead is very concerning right now is that uh, in order to try to keep the numbers of people coming to the protests up, 
the organizers of the protests are spreading a wider net in terms of the issues that they're trying to recruit people to protest about. And that strikes me personally as a regular protest goer um, as very problematic. In other words, the protests, it seems to me, are a kind of extra democratic step here. At the end of the day, the government that's in place won the election. And so you have a right to be unhappy about that. I didn't vote for this government. I've actually never voted for a, a slate that won, but that was true in the States more or less also. So, you know, that just goes with the territory. But that, um, that, that is that is interesting. We won't get into that now. Okay, that's fine. I mean, I maybe have one or two, but I also haven't voted in the States in 25 years because when we moved here, I stopped voting in the States. But in any event, uh, I mean, I could, but I just don't. But um I'm very concerned. I mean, the protests in a certain way are highly democratic. They're an outpouring of popular will. On the other hand, they're highly undemocratic in the sense that there's this sense that unless the democratically elected government changes the policies that I don't like, I'm going to block the streets and the pilots aren't going to fly and the doctors are going to strike and so on and so forth. There's something fundamentally undemocratic about it. I felt that the protests were somewhat legitimate or completely legitimate at the point when they were about judicial reform. Because that it struck me as being an existential crisis for the for the for Israel as a liberal nation state, and therefore, even if it struck me as being a little edgy, it felt okay. Uh, I don't love the budget deal being made with the Haredim, but we're always making terrible budget deals with the Haredim, and to now make that the issue strikes me as problematic. To take every issue that's now brewing and make that the subject of the protests. I think ultimately is going to weaken the backbone of the protests, even though right now they think it's it's boosting the numbers. So uh, what's going on is we're waiting. The budget's going to probably pass on Monday, and then people like Yariv Levin and Simcha Rothman say they've told the government very clearly. Yariv Levin, the, the Minister of Justice, who has been probably the biggest single force behind the 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 legislation. Correct. Although Simcha Rothman is much very much at his side as the chairman of the Knesset Committee on Constitutional Constitution, Law, and Justice. Uh, they say they're going full bore ahead. I mean, Bibi obviously is between a rock and a hard place. He knows that if he tries to push it ahead, uh, the protests will will burden and, uh, and they could explode and we could have some violence. If he doesn't push it ahead, they say they're going to leave the government and he'll have elections anyway. So there's been very positive things. We're nowhere near done. This is This is by no means resolved. And I think how it plays out is... At this point, anybody's guess. So, um, you know, people consistently have underestimated Netanyahu's political skills um, and certainly his will to <laughs> his will to power or his will to stay in power. Um, how how do you imagine him resolving this? I mean, I always think of a great story connected to my alma mater, the University of Chicago. Um, John D. Rockefeller, the money behind the university, very much wanted it to be a Baptist university. William Rainey Harper, of course, the first president of the university, was interested in creating a German research, uh, a research university on the German model. So Harper established a committee to, to examine the, prayer, the question of prayer on campus. And the maneuver was, until the committee made a decision, there would be no prayer on campus. <laughs> the committee has never met. So that was in 1892 or something like that. Uh, so is there is there essentially a uh, a maneuver that Bibi could use to permanently kick this can down the road? Does he even want to reform or does he feel like he just has to provide his right with the minimum he can to appease them? 
Right. So the premise of the question, of course, is that BBA knows what he wants and BB is and B, BB is in charge or in control. I think the latter is certainly subject to a good deal of question. BB, the former manipulator of his partners, uh, that he's not the BB that we're seeing right now. I mean, the BB that we're seeing now has lost control of the party, uh, has certainly lost control of the country. The war a couple of weeks ago, mini war, uh, the kerfuffle, call it whatever you will. That helped him. He went up in the polls a bit because he handled. He always handles those very well. He knows how to get in. He knows how to get out. That's the trick. And um, he got in and he got out. And we took out some of the leaders of Islamic Jihad with some unbelievably, unbelievably impressive uh, armaments that are American made that Israel has recrafted and added electronics to. Uh, just as an aside to an aside, uh, those missiles that went through the windows of these various win of these guys who were taken out at the first three, the first night, were apparently fired from about 100 kilometers away. Wow. And uh, and then, you know, the, the GPSs and whatever takes it right in. So when you, the planes don't get anywhere near Gaza. So they have actually no idea what's coming, literally. Um, so BB handled that stuff very, very well. And um, he did get a little bit of a bump in the polls. Here's what I think the ideal scenario would be. I think Bibi, you know, Bibi is on record for many, many years talking about the importance of a strong and stable judiciary. I mean, he's there, there's there's almost limitless numbers of, of view, YouTubes and quotes and interviews with him talking about that. I don't really think he's a big fan of this judicial reform. I think he's not a fan of he's a fan of anything that will keep him in office. Mm -hmm. uh, he needs to stay in office. He feels, I think, because of his own judicial woes and um He's vulnerable potentially to both indictment and jail if he's not prime minister. So he wants to stay prime minister as long as he possibly can, which is a reminder, of course, that Israel desperately needs term limits. I mean, unrelated to judicial reform, Israel needs term limits in a very bad way. Um, and they hopefully will be in a high on the agenda of some incoming government. The best deal would be, I think, for, first of all, the prosecution to say to Bibi, um, we're going to make you just we're going to drop everything as long as you agree to get out of politics. Not right now. We don't need elections now. You stay in office for a year or two years, nothing radical, no annexation, no deals with the Palestinians. I mean, Iran is a separate issue, but nothing radical in any other direction. Just run the country, legislate, pass budgets, pass laws, do what you need to do. And then in two years, you're out and we drop the charges or something like that. That kind of feels to me like the best possible way to get out of this. But apparently it's been offered and there's some discussion going on with the attorney general, but it's not clear that it's going anywhere. Another possibility would be for Gantz, and this for all we know is happening. I mean, we have no way of knowing who's talking to whom, uh, even though everybody would deny it. But one possibility would be for Gantz to go say to him, listen, I don't need to be prime minister right now. I don't need elections, even though the polls are showing that I would beat you, at least they were before the war. That's not the issue. I'm going to bring my votes in and we're going to stand at your side and you can get rid of the people on your right who are going to ditch you. Don't worry, you're still going to stay prime minister. I got your back. Um, and I think that even though Gantz ran on a I will not serve with BB platform, um, Wait, didn't, didn't, didn't Gantz fall? This is like... Uh, yeah, like, Gantz fell for it once before, but I think here he wouldn't be saying, and I'm going to be prime minister in two years. Just yeah. like, I want to avoid elections. This is not the time that I'm going to get to be prime minister. I'm just going to give the country some stability. I think that would be very statesmanlike of him. I don't know if he would do it, but I think if he did do it, his electorate, which voted for him on a I would never serve with BB platform, I think he'd be forgiven. Uh, those are the two most elegant ways. Other than that, BB is in a very desperate position and desperate people do crazy things. Uh, and I don't know what BB would do to try to keep the government going, uh, but without the crowds in the streets really taking over the country or bringing it to a standstill. So he's in a very let, tough let spot. Me, let me ask you, I've spoken with senior Israeli 
leaders um, recently, um, not Bibi, but other senior Israelis who say, you know, there's a deal here because the advocates of judicial reform are not completely crazy. You have right. in Israel uh, a judiciary that arrogated to itself powers that were never voted to it, never right. given to it in, by, a, by a democratic or particularly transparent process. The judiciary has from time to time abused and one might even say outrageously abused its, its privileges by interfering in a democratic process in a way that would scandalize um, other, uh, other democracies. It's wholly legitimate to have a conversation about the borderlines, the, 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 the correct borderlines between the legislative, judici judicial, and executive functions of government. Democrats here in the United States talk about it all the time when they suggest adding members to the court or, 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 or uh, retirements at a certain age and so on. Um, wouldn't it make sense, for example, to uh, pass a reform that allowed the Knesset to overrule the Supreme Court, but say by a two-thirds majority, not that slender 61, uh, you know, 50% plus one majority that was originally envisioned, or um, uh, Shani Moore, another contributor to our um, to our this issue, suggests a fourth reading of a bill so that it would have to be passed by two successive uh, Knessets in order to be made law. The, the an election could could intervene. Isn't there? Is this is this going to be zero sum? Um, Either this reform goes nowhere and dies, or it passes more or less as uh, Levin originally imagined it. Is there is there no room for a compromise that would satisfy both the protesters in the streets and the um, hardline Likudniks? Ironically, at this point, I think that the hardline Likudniks are probably less hardline than the protesters on the street. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think, ironically, here's the tragedy of this is, as you point out, Brett, correct, completely correctly, there's more than enough room in, uh, in, in Israel's judicial system for some significant reform that would be completely legitimate. Uh, I mean, by the way, I mean, all judicial review is fundamentally anti-democratic. And, uh, you know, the American Supreme Court also has basically arrogated to itself the right of judicial review a long time ago, admittedly. Uh, but in, Martin, in the American case... Presidents win elections and they appoint judges. In the Israeli case, the way in which judges are appointed is not entirely democratic either. No, but presidents don't appoint judges. Presidents nominate judges to well, the They Senate. nominate judges, excuse me. They nominate judges and, of course, the Supreme Court confirms. But still, that's my point. There is a democratic process that puts these characters into their benches. Correct, correct, right, right. On the other hand, again, the, 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 Roth, the, the Levin and Rothman proposals would have basically subsumed the court into the Knesset for all intents and purposes, because the Knesset itself would pick the judges. So you already have a Knesset that's the executive and the legislative already bound up once. And if they control the judges, it would have gone too far. My point is that the sad thing here is there really is room for reform. And had Rothman and Levin come out of the starting blocks in an entirely different way and said, listen, guys, this is a new government. We're going to raise an issue that's long been taboo. Here's what we want to begin to talk to you about. This has to change and to talk about why it has to change. Uh, that would have created an entirely different kind of discourse in Israel. The notion that here's the whole wad of paper and I'm about to ram it down your throat 
that is what I think created a sense of outrage. This could have been done much more gradually. It could have been done piecemeal. And I think now they know that's the best that they can get. But I think the rage on the street is so palpable about this that there may not be compromise on the street. And I don't know to what extent Bibi can get people to, to open themselves up to that. But that's where we need to go. We need to go to some place where there is some moderate reform. The question is whether the prevailing political winds will really allow that to happen. And I just don't know at this point. I mean, I think the people that are out there are, are, are thoughtful people, many of them, but it's thoughtfulness mixed with rage at this point. And I don't know, I don't know what options he really has at this point. Um, as you say, right, you could you could require a two-thirds or three-quarters majority of the Knesset. You could have a fourth reading. You could also require that the Supreme Court, for example, rule 12 out of 15 in order to override, uh, you know, in, or for the Knesset not to be able to override it or that sort of thing. There's all kinds of things that could be done. I want to make one other point about how how deep how high emotions run here. One of the things that I think people have not um, sufficiently internalized is the biographical piece of many of the players in this, especially on the pro-reform side. But if you take people like Levin, the Minister of Justice, Rothman, the Chairman of the Committee on Constitution, Law, and Justice, Smotrich, Ben Gvir, who are not really in the judicial reform piece, but are very much part of the political picture. All of these people, and many, many more, came of political age in 2005 with the disengagement from Gaza. And what they saw was a group of 8,000 Israelis living in Gaza totally legally, peacefully, by the way, much more peacefully than most, many of the places in the West Bank, ironically, um, appeal to the Supreme Court time and again to intervene. And the Supreme Court refused to hear their case. Uh, whereas, of course, people from Sheikh Jarrah who are fighting over a small number of houses uh, get heard by the Supreme Court all the time. What the what 2005 convinced these people was that they're never going to get heard in front of this Supreme Court. Judicial reform is, in many respects, something that was sparked by 2005 and the sense that the liberal, secular Ashkenazi establishment is so opposed to our very essence that it won't even hear our case. That's the rage on the right. And the rage on the left is what you guys are trying to do is steal our democracy. Um, and there's not going to be any compromise there. I actually think ironically, as I said a second ago, ironically, the right might be more willing to compromise at this point uh, than the center. There's no really left anymore, but the center might not be so willing. Um, I don't know what BB's best move is, though. There has to be some room for compromise. That's what we need. A few months ago, you, Mati Friedman, and Yossi Klein Halevi, whom I consider some of the most sober, thoughtful um, voices um, in Israel, speaking often to an Anglo community or to the diaspora community, wrote this really remarkable letter, um, really calling on American Jews to get engaged in, in this issue. Um, now, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but I suspect that if the issue that had confronted Israel in 2023 wasn't judicial reform, but some question involving security um, or the Palestinians, you, knowing the, the three of you, you would have said, you know, you guys butt out because right. uh, Israelis understand the security picture and our children's lives are on the line, not yours. Um, uh, we're the ones who, who who are gonna have to deal with these decisions, the consequences of the decisions that, that, that we make. But this time you felt like American Jewry 
diaspora jury really needed to get involved and taken some flack for uh, for this position. It goes with the it, it goes with the territory. What should American Jews? Okay, Canadians. There are Canadians on this call. There are a few Brits. So, right. uh, what should diaspora Jews uh, be doing now? What 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 what's your advice to us two months after that letter? I mean, I was going to like this answer, but I don't think there's really very much that diaspora Jews can do. I, I'll speak. I don't want to speak for Yossi and Mati. I think each of us came to this project with a slight, the, the project of the letter, um, slightly different agendas. And we certainly wanted slightly different language and we compromised here and there. I wanted a different title, for example, uh, and I compromised on it. But the title that I wanted was something like an open letter to the most senior leadership of American Jewish organizations. Why? Because my agenda with the letter Back when this is, don't forget, this is very, very early on. This is in the absolute rawest stage when it looked like this might go through, when it like the country was going to tear itself apart, when there was real talk of civil war. I mean, this was back when we were all panicking and we were despondent. Uh, my, my feeling was BB climbed up a tree and BB needs to be given every possible opportunity to get off the tree. And I didn't know if the, if the ladder down would be 270 economists or whether it would be fighter pilots not showing up to train. And we thought maybe if some significant American Jewish organization say to him, and we asked actually their leadership to get on a plane together and come and talk to him, you know, you can figure out the alphabet soup of all these organizations were, it's not all that hard to figure out. Uh, we said to them, you need to get on a plane together and come and talk to him um, and say, you know, you got a whole group of American Jews here, like 6 million of them, and you're gonna lose a large faction of them. That was my agenda. I wanted the letter and the press. I wanted to give ammunition to the lay leadership in the boardrooms of these organizations to pressure their their professional staff to say, in this particular instance, being pro-Israel does not mean being pro the Israeli government. In this particular instance, being pro-Israel means being behind the people who are trying to preserve Israel as a liberal democracy. Uh, it worked with one or two organizations. It didn't work with other organizations. It, it emerged, I think, again, I, I'm going to speak mostly for myself, although I think they share this. Everybody was doing what they could. In other words, pilots who felt so inclined were saying we're not showing up. Doctors were striking. People were striking. My kids were on the streets, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, blocking the aisle alone, doing whatever they were doing. The question is, what are we going to do? You know, what are those of us who are our age? You know, Yossi and I are certainly not doing reserve duty. I don't remember if Mati is anymore or not. But what, are, what can we do? And uh, the argument that we felt was we have a, we have an audience and we have people that read us and we want to try to give use that audience to give BB one more ladder down from the tree. At the end of the day, the ladder was not the economists, although I think that helped a lot. It was fundamentally the polls. Fundamentally, the polls was the ladder that BB understood he needed to get on that ladder and get down. Um, so that's what we were hoping would happen months and months ago. At this point, you know, it's really not clear to By me. Way, just, I just interrupt uh, briefly. I, I just can't help but say this. The people who mattered in turning the debate against the government were people whose pro-Israel bona fides were beyond question. So Correct. the people who really had, had no effect on this, this discussion were people who had essentially joined the J Street left and who could be dismissed as part of the essentially permanent screeching anti-Israel caucus that was going to oppose the government no matter what it did or find fault with the government no matter what it did. Here, what, what, what was distinctive was the credibility that you, the pilots, 
so many others, former prime ministers, Naftali Bennett, brought to this particular debate. Awfully hard to caricature your opponents as a bunch of leftists when Naftali Bennett is part of part of the opposition. Right, and several different several former chiefs of staff. I mean, people who by no means were, were, were lefties. And this is, by the way, a really important point, Brett. You know, one of the things that I think those people, you're right, the people that have been harping on the Palestinian issue for a very long time and the J Street crowd, and, and it's not only J Street, there's a whole, there's a wide swath of people. Look, you know, again, we can say that we love our kids, but if we love our kids and every time we sit down at the dinner table, all we do is chastise our kid all day long through dinner about how they're doing this wrong and that wrong and that wrong, but I'm only saying it because I love you. At a certain point, the kid feels no love and the kid turns, you know, as a former- Wait, I, I thought that's a typical Jewish household. It okay. is, it is. But let's just say hypothetically, <laughs> hypothetically- if we didn't A minus, you loser. <laughs> you know, and I think we know that from any relationship, you know, a relationship in which criticism is going to get heard is a relationship in which most of the discourse is about love or yeah. most of the discourse is about support. And that's, of course, been totally, and one of the ways of testing this, by the way, and I don't want to go into names here, but- you can figure out who all the obvious characters are. Go on their Facebook pages or their Twitter feeds and just go start scrolling back years and look back how 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 far do you have to go till they say something really unbelievably admiring about, about the Jewish state. So you're right. Those people had no cred in Israel. They don't have any cred now. They didn't have any cred before. They're not going to have any cred in the future as long as the discourse stays the same. But what Mati and Yossi and I, I think, had was um, in American Jewry cred as people who are hardly could be hard to be accused of being leftists, I think, um, who who moved here, who care about the place. We were all desperate to be able to say that we were doing whatever we could. It's important to understand that this was a moment of profound, it was not, it's hard to know what the right word is. It was, it felt like the country was going to die. It really felt like the country was going to die if we didn't, if we all didn't get together and try to change something here. And, um, so we did what we did. I'm, I don't have any regret about doing what we did. It, it worked to a certain extent. It didn't work as much as it might have, but we didn't think it would do much more than it did. Um, but I thought it was important to say, but it was really a sui generis moment. And if it were the Palestinian issue or a budget issue with the Haredim or, or whatever else it is, even if I might, in theory, agree with some of them about something, it's really a domestic issue, which we have to figure out on our own, no matter what they think about it. One of the, uh, and, and by the way, let me before I ask the question, I just want to urge the people who are listening in, this is a great time to start um, thinking about your, 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 the questions you might have for, for Danny. So start, start populating that chat with, with questions, because I do want, I, I do want the audience to, to, um, to be able to um, uh, talk to Danny directly, or at least query him directly. You mentioned you, you were speaking about the the sense that the country was going to die, but you know you you wrote a really historically informed essay, which I think reminded readers that there have been these moments before, actually, some frequency in in Israeli history. It's not just the Altalena affair, huge protests led, I think, by Menachem Begin over German reparations, which right. Um, was a bitter pill to swallow. On the other hand, it probably kept the country afloat in the 1950s and allowed it to get ready for the 67 uh, war. I remember formatively when I was in my 20s, the Oslo years, I remember exactly where I was in November of 1995 when Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. Another period of huge protest, bitter division. I was editor of the Jerusalem Post during disengagement. 
another moment that was that where the, the country felt irreparably, uh, almost irreparably uh, a, a split. So in that perspective, where do the last set of protests, were they qualitatively different from those moments or is it just another chapter in a story of democracies that ultimately, like, like families, get into big arguments from time to time? I don't know that the protests were different. I think the threat to the to the country was different. I mean, I think that the divisiveness over Oslo was obviously very, very, very dangerous. And we buried Yitzhak Rabin because of it. At least the rhetoric to a certain extent contributed, I think, to probably Yigal Amir's horrible act. Um, but the system was not in question. The notion that a prime minister was going to be elected in a certain kind of way was never in question. When people were divided over reparations, uh, there was really two different questions about sort of how does Israel both keep it keep itself out of the red and how does Israel maintain its soul? Uh, and you know, they were both legitimate, they were both legitimate points. But I think that the, it wasn't so much the protests that were different. It was that the threat to the enterprise had the Levin. Look, if the Levin, if the Levin proposal had gone through and there's no judicial review and the government essentially picks the justices, then you could be in a situation, let's say it went through and it went through right now, right? You could be in a situation where in six months, the government votes by 61 votes, which they have, uh, we're going to close all the mosques and we're going to close all the reform synagogues and all this, all the conservative synagogues. What do you do about it? Now, if they did that right now, the Supreme Court in 15 seconds would say you can't do that. But if the Supreme Court is defanged, what then protects that? Uh, if you're not going to be able to have a minority that's protected, whether it's a political minority, a religious minority, a gender minority, whatever the case might might be, that just felt like an assault on the nature of the country. Let, let me, that let was me, much different, much different than the other challenges that we faced. Let me challenge you here, because I know some okay. of our of our audience probably favors the reform. They would say, well, what protected it before 1995 uh, and Aaron Barak's kind of judicial revolution? Um, I mean... He empowered the court to do things that it didn't previously wasn't previously able to do. So, how would this judicial reform have done anything other than return to a status quo anti the Barack uh, the Barack reforms? Of, I'm talking about Aaron right. Barak, the Supreme Court Chief right. Justice, President of the Supreme Court, not not Ehud. Well, it would have been. I mean, had the composition of the committee that appoints judges gone from what it is to what Levin proposed. The government would have essentially been able to pick all the judges. So the government would have the executive power, the legislative power, and it would pick the people who served in the judicial wing as well. That's just not a balance of power. Don't forget Israel. I mean, as you obviously know very well, Israel is a unicameral, it's a unicameral parliament. So we don't have a House and a Senate. We don't have a House of Common and a House of Lords. I mean, even the House of Lords, which in many respects is only a, is a fiction, can at least delay the 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 uh, can delay legislation by a year or so. I mean, there's at least some little pushback. You would have basically erased all pushback, and that was never the case before. Um, and minorities were more or less protected before the Barack Revolution. The Barack Revolution went too far. There's no question. That's why I think everybody who's thoughtful about this would acknowledge there is room for judicial reform in Israel. There's significant room for judicial reform, but not judicial reform that completely erases checks and balances. And um, so I don't think that people should, should misconstrue being opposed to the reforms as being in favor of the status quo. That's not the case. And that's the tragedy of the way that Levin and Rothman comported themselves. The tragedy is that they were onto something really super important 
but the way that they sought to implement it so enraged the country that now nobody's really having the conversation that it should be having. Uh, but yeah, the court functioned before the Aharon Barak years, and it functioned fairly well. And if we went right back to that, I don't think it would be all that problematic. But all you would have to do then is not change the apparatus, just you know, get the court to stop doing judicial review the way that it did, for example. And that could have been done without changing the composition of the committee or limiting judicial review in a certain kind of way, as you suggested before, from some of the people that have written for the journal. So go ahead. So one of the ways in which this, I think this debate was so particularly divisive and neuralgic is that many Israelis, and you hinted at this earlier, many Israelis felt that it was about judicial reform and the substance of the bill, but it was about more than that. It was about the who rule, who really rules this this country, and how do they rule, and what what happens to the historically privileged status of one segment of the the country? Call it secular Tel Avivian or Ashkenazi or wealthy, whatever it is. In, uh, in an Israel where the Haredim are an increasingly large share of the population, in which settlers seem increasingly to get their way with uh, the government, in which the officer corps of the IDF uh, is increasingly national religious, that there was there was more that 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 there's there was more to this debate than just the substance of the bill. Is that your sense of it as well? And is what has been exposed sort of um, kind of like the moment in a relationship where a kind of things are said that can't be unsaid, that we're gonna enter into a period of, of sort of permanent divisions and a contest for power in Israeli society, whether the issue is judicial reform or the service of the Haredim in, in the military or, or whatever else the, the subject du jour might be. Is that your sense of where Israel's going? Well, look, there are some demographic issues here that are obviously critical. Right? The, Haredi, the Haredi issue is critical. My sense of, by the way, is going on in the Haredi world right now, not in the Haredi world, but about the Haredi world, is that there is a level of rage in the Israeli public, the non-Haredi public, that is building up to the point, somebody that I can't mention also, in a, in a relatively high echelon of government activity here, told me that they went to, again, I won't mention the name of the person, but a very, 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 very leading Haredi politician um, and said to him, I don't know, uh, 10 weeks ago, but in the middle of this whole thing, you're about to make hundreds of thousands of Haredi children very, very hungry. And he looked at them like, what are you talking about? And he said, they said he, this guy said to this Haredi person, the rage that you are engendering in the Israeli populace is going to come back and bite you because there's going to come a day. It could be in six months. It could be in six years. But there's going to come a day when the left is back in power or the center is back in power. And people are not going to forget what you've done here. And there's going to be no hesitation about taking all the subsidies away from the Haredi. All those Haredi kids who get their hot meal a day from, um, you know, from their school, that money is going to be gone. You know, there's a quote that was just making its way around Israeli social media this morning where Bibi Netanyahu was on record as saying, Haredim should have as many children as they can afford to support. You know, that's not the Bibi of, of today because of his political issues. So I think, first of all, there's a huge amount of rage at the Haredi world. You're not going to change their birth rate, but you have to change the, the, the way in which they interact with society. And I really think it can be done. That's that's the first point. The second point is, yeah, the Mizrahim are, are, a, are a majority now, and that's fine, and that's great. 
And I think that it's a huge success story of Israeli society, how far they've come in, in every echelon. I mean, every echelon. But there's there's Mizrahim on the Supreme Court. If you go to get a, you know, yeah, go to have surgery in a hospital, your surgeon's probably just as likely to be Mizrahi or Russian or Ashkenazi. There's really no way to know who it's going to be, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's been tremendous progress here. And I wouldn't overstate um, the degree to which this is about, that the issue here is about who's going to control the country. I don't think it's really about that at the end of the day, but I think this this whole thing has pointed to is the need for a national conversation. We have, you know, I think it's it's Micha Goodman who points this points this out really, really brilliantly is as characteristic of Micha. Um, he says Israelis vote for parties, but they identify as tribes. And um, you know, Americans vote Democratic or Republican and they identify as Democratic or Republican. But but Israelis they don't vote Mizrahi they but they identify Mizrahi they don't vote Yemenite there's no Yemenite party but they might identify as Yemenite or religious or modern religious and so on and so forth the religious community the Mizrahi community the nationalist community have been unbelievably successful they have shown that they have a way of life which engenders reverence and a degree of continuity among subsequent generations that should be the envy of the Ashkenazi community to a great extent. And we have a lot to learn from them. Um, at the same time, the Ashkenazi community does not represent evil incarnate. They are the ones who are the economy here. They are the ones who are most of the you know, internationally recognized academe and so forth. We have to learn to bridge this. I don't think it's impossible at all. I think it's about a national conversation. It's about statesmanship. Um, there are What's causing this is the specific issue of the reforms, and I don't think it's really about the social divide that many people want to think it is. I don't think there are different tribes, but we can we can bridge them. Has last question for me, and then I'll turn to the audience. Has this moment revived Israel's left? No, but it's revived the center. The, the left is dead. And the, the polls are showing that if there were elections, tomorrow, at least right before Pesach, the polls were showing that if there were elections, the Labor Party, which is the founding party of the state, obviously Ben-Gurion's party, Golda Meir's party, Yitzhak Rabin's party, the party that in 49 got 46 seats, that, that right now has four seats, were there elections to be held a few weeks ago, they would have not gotten into the Knesset at all. The left is dead. The left is dead because it hasn't had a vision for Israel that spoke to anyone outside a very narrow group of people. I know that in the American Jewish discourse, you know, the whole issue with the Palestinians is the issue that pops up first. And because of the book that just came out, and I had a book come out a few weeks ago, um, so I've been doing a lot of Zooms, a lot of Jewish organizations, and a lot of Jewish communities in the States, which have been very interesting. But the first question that comes up is the Palestinian issue. And I'm always struck by the fact that those of us who live here literally never talk about it. Even when there's a war going on, we don't even talk about it. It's just what it is. It's kind of like, the gun issue in America. When there's a horrible shooting, people sit around the table and talk about the shooting. But then everybody knows there's not going to be gun reform in America. It might or might not work if it did happen in the first, but there's not going to be. It's part of life in America. Part of life in America is you get shot in malls, in churches, in synagogues, in baseball fields, in stadiums, at concerts. That's just how it is. Um, and for us, we have a Palestinian issue, which is grinding, debilitating, tragic, um, it's a huge moral issue for both sides, actually, but it's not going anywhere. Because the left basically defined itself decades ago as being about that, when most Israelis understood there was simply nothing to do about it. Within, I mean, you can make it a little bit better here and there, but you can't solve it. 
Um, I think the left is I think the left is is completely irrelevant at this point, but it has awakened the center, Brett. And that, I think, is actually the most exciting thing that, about what's happened here. Uh, according to the polls, the largest block now is the center. Imagine an America in which the largest block was a center. Uh, that would be a very, very different kind of America. It's a center that's deeply Zionist, that's very Western, that wants very much to be engaged with people that are not like it, or at least so the signs at the, po at the uh, protests say. So that's what I was open with, you know, a while ago when I said, but I think what's happened here is actually very exciting in certain ways, that something has been awakened in Israeli society that is really profound. I'll just end with this, because I know we want to open it up to, to the audience, but um, so I, one of my kids, you know, he's lived a pretty interesting life. He uh, he was a commando for eight years, and he clerked on the Supreme Court. Obviously, a lawyer. Um, he's married. He's got a kid. He's got a kid on the way. He runs a startup, of course, because he's an Israeli male. So of course, he runs a startup. But I mean, he's had a pretty interesting life. And the night that Gallant was fired, X number of weeks ago, and everybody stormed onto the streets. He stormed onto the streets too. My wife and I were actually in the states. And he was out until like three o'clock in the morning and then he texted us and he said, you know, been out here till three o'clock in the morning, going home to shower, get a couple hours of sleep, then I'm going to go to work in the morning. And he wrote the following words, the most profoundly moving moment of my entire life. And that's a kid who was a commando and clerked at the court and done a lot of interesting things. There's something that has touched these kids, we're talking about people in their 30s, that I think they didn't even realize how much they cared. And what we have to do now, what the country needs is to figure out how do you turn that energy into a powerful and broad political force? In other words, not into a narrow party and not into something that fizzles once the protests are done, but to actually create a new political entity, which is broad-based, which is Jewishly serious, but democratically committed, which is not only Ashkenazi, because the polls are not only, the, the protests are not only Ashkenazi, if we can, the question now is a question of conversion. Can we convert the protests into a political movement? Can you convert a social movement into a political movement? That's the unknown. I don't say that meaning that I think we can't. I just think we don't know yet who's going to do it and how it would be done. Okay, we're going to go to questions from our audiences, from our audience, I should say. Um, Melvin Bloom asks, Israel's economic success has rested heavily on attracting foreign investment Capital runs from unstable environments. Is there a concern about the impact of the current per, um, political turbulence on Israel's economic future? Absolutely. I mean, Moody's downgraded Israel's ratings uh, and it caused great consternation and Bibi was clearly worried. Bloomberg downgraded Bibi, uh, Israel's ratings and Bibi was currently worried. The rumor on the street, and I can't vouch for this, I can only tell that I've heard it from people who are supposed to know, but the rumor on the street is that S&P was about to downgrade Israel's rating also and didn't because behind the scenes they were given assurances that the change would not be nearly as dramatic as some people thought or afraid it would be. I don't know that that's true. I know that they didn't downgrade. Whether that was true or that was the reason or not, I obviously can't say. But people in the know have said that to me. But yeah, I mean, people were very, very worried about the economic thing. And the great irony, of course, is that Israel's robust economy uh, is in many respects the brainchild of Bibi Netanyahu. He deserves, you know, eternal um, admiration for what he was able to do with the economy when he was minister of the treasury many decades ago. So to have him be the prime minister under whom it might come unraveled uh, would be an autumn, like a kind of a tragedy of Greek proportions. But yes, people are very worried and many people think that's why Bibi's backing off. Jeff Schwartz 
writes, when Ayanet Shaked uh, Ayanet was the, the justice minister, she successfully managed things. So there was, a, there was appointed six to seven conservative judges to the high court, that, that with no reform to the appointment process. If that's correct, why does there need to be wholesale reform? Why not just use the powers of the justice minister to keep moving things rightward? Well, the point is well taken. I mean, I think that's exactly what the people that are protesting would say. They would say that the Supreme Court is much more religious and much more right than people give it credit for. The rumor on the street is that it's a bastion of secular Ashkenazi, anti-Zionist foment. But it's not. I think there's three justices now from one village in Gush Etzion. I think from either um, far, uh, from Neve Daniel, I forget, which, or El Azar maybe, I forget which one. But um, Mizrahim are, are well represented on the court, perhaps not more than half, which they should be in terms of in terms of numbers, but they're represented. Religious, national religious people are overrepresented on the court. And I think that Jeffrey's question is very well put. You can change the nature of the court simply by way the process works. And that's why this was, in, to a certain extent, an unnecessary rupture in Israeli society. Um, let's see. Anna Gukovskaya asks you to speak about the religious-secular divide in the country. Yeah, so we've been talking about it a little bit tonight. I mean, first of all, I think the terms are not, the terms are, are they're not the right terms. There's no such thing as secular here. Uh, secular in Israel and secular in America mean totally different things. The vast majority of secular Israelis do something on Shabbat, like a family Shabbat meal. The vast number of secular Israelis, the numbers are out there. You can look, for example, in um, in Shmuel Rosner's book that he co-authored with Kamifuk's called Hashtag Israeli Judaism. All the data is there. It's not secular, but it's it's not halachic. It's it's very Western. Um, there's an, there is a core of anti-religious sentiment, but it's really, I think, shrinking. This is a country that needs both. I think that most people would say that if we're not a Western country in a significant way, then we're not going to make it. But I think what a lot of people don't want to talk about is that if we're not a country that's profoundly and deeply Jewish, not only by virtue of our religion of birth, but in the way that we live, in the way that we think, in what we read, in what we study, and how we live, we're not going to make it either. Uh, the idea of a secular religious divide at the end of the day First of all, it's not nearly as stark as the language suggests, but I think what more and more and more people in this country are coming to <laughs> recognize is that um, we, it can't be one or the other. We, abs we have to figure out a way of, 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 of creating a new kind of Israeli who embodies both of those commitments. Now here, by the way, the right, the religious right has been, well, why, why has the, Brett, you pointed out before, right, that, that, a, that a, a significant portion of the officers in the IDF now come from the religious right. Um, and where was that in 1967? In 1967, I think the kibbutzim were something like five or six percent of Israeli population. Five or six percent of Israelis lived in kibbutzim, something around that. The number might be slightly wrong, but in 1967, and about a third of the casualties in the war were from kibbutzim, meaning that, I mean, they, they were killed and served at rates far beyond what they represented. That's now the case with the, with the religious right. Now, why is that the case? Because the kibbutzim lost their allure. They had been too Marxist. They'd been too socialist. They'd been too communist. By the time Israel starts to make it into the Western world, that allure is gone. They had, by the way, been totally unopen to um, many of the, of the immigrants who were coming into Israel in the 40s and the 50s. And they kind of defined themselves almost as an elite guard 
who wanted nothing to do with the newly forming Israel. They died. And now, of course, the number of kibbutzim that are not privatized can, I think, literally be counted on the fingers of one hand. It's over. Um, they didn't, they didn't continue, they didn't, they didn't manage to maintain themselves. Whereas at the same time, what was the religious right doing? It was building schools, it was building yeshivot, it was building all sorts of programs, B'nai Akiva youth movements. It did all sorts of things. It's now a mass movement with tremendous meaning attached to it. Don't think of Smartrich and Ben Gvir as the average religious national person. The, the, the national religious movement looks a lot more like people like me um, and, 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 and people who are raising their kids to be perfectly decent human beings who don't hate Arabs, who are not anti-democratic. Um, that's a critical part of Israeli society now, and there's no going back from that. The question is, can we create some sort of melding of the two? I think we can. I think there's an awareness on the part of the secular world, even though it's not secular, as I said, that Jewish content has to make its way. And by the way, just the, the number of programs that are now exist in Israel for secular people to study. We're coming up to Shavuot. If you go to Tel Aviv the first night of Shavuot, which is what, Thursday night this week, and you go to Alma, which is a secular Tel Aviv school for studying Jewish texts for secular people, they're not in their building. They're outside because they get 3,000 people at a Tikkun Leil Shavuot in Tel Aviv, secular people coming to study Torah. If you go, you look in the parks of Tel Aviv on Yom Kippur, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are totally secular with their phones and whatever, but have come to hear the shofar blown, that's not secular. It's not secular in the classic sense. It's not halachic, but there's a deep yearning to be part of something larger. And what we need is people who can actually channel that into something very positive. We have an election, I think, on August 1st. I forget if the date's wrong or right. But we have an election coming up for the chief rabbinate. Now, the only candidates are Haredi candidates. That's the tragedy. The candidates that are running have no interest in speaking to or ministering to or addressing the larger population of Israelis. We need people like Rabbi Goren, right, the first or the first chief rabbi, Rabbi Herzog, who were perfectly, you know, completely orthodox rabbis, but who understood something about the populace at large. The fact that nobody in Israel even knows, by the way, that the election for the rabbinate is coming up, and nobody cares because it's one Haredi guy or another, what do I care which one it is? That just shows you how broken the system is. What we need is a different kind of religious leadership in this country. And just like in the United States, things like Hadar and all sorts of other options are springing up for people that want religiosity, tradition, but openness. Um, Israel's going to have to find the wellspring of that also. And I actually think that this primes the pump to a great extent. Okay, I'm asking David Nathanson's question because I can't resist. Um, what do you think of the Peter Beinart phenomenon? To be sure, it is marginal now, but could it become more than that? Look, um, I don't know what's I don't I'm gonna I don't want to talk about Peter himself. Um, so because I really don't understand what happened there. I mean, I really don't understand it, and it, it's probably much more complicated than meets the eye. But what if by the Peter Bidart argument you mean um is it possible that anti-Jewish state Judaism will become more widespread? I suppose that's possible. Uh, you know, with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And nationalism not being, don't forget in Israel, by the way, what's the symbol of the protesters? The Israeli flag. The protesters in Seattle and Portland were not carrying around American flags. That was fundamentally anti the nation state. Whereas what we have here is absolutely pro the nation state, just want a different kind of, of, of judicial arrangement here. So Israel is not going through the kind of anti national sentiment that America is awash in on the left, in the center and on the left. 
Um, but because that anti-national sentiment is so pervasive among Jews as well, because they're part of the Democratic Party, uh, it's possible that an anti-Jewish state Judaism uh, would develop in America. But here's the two things that I would say to you about it. Number one, it will lead to a complete divorce between Israelis and those Jews. Israelis will have no interest in them whatsoever. And those people are going to put themselves entirely on the wrong side of Jewish history. That's that's patently obvious to me. But here's the even more important. They will die out. How do I know that? They will die out because what's the only issue that American Jews actually still care enough about to argue about? They don't argue about whether women can be rabbis anymore. That's like 30 years ago. They don't argue about, I don't know, a certain hashgacha. Can you eat triangle K? I mean, who cares? Some people do, some people don't, and they do what they do, and nobody bothers anybody about it. The only issue in American Jewish life anymore that is actually a spark plug that gets people across the across the spectrum to have a conversation with each other is Israel. You pull Israel as a Jewish nation state out of that equation, there's nothing left in that part of American Judaism to create any sense of purpose or passion. So they'll die out. So is it possible that it'll become more widespread? It's possible. But will those people be around in 50 years to tell the story? They won't. Reuven Hawk, I, I hope I didn't, I don't, I didn't botch that. Um, how would you change um, how the Haredim interact with the rest of Israeli society, as you mentioned? Look, I'm not, I'm not the world's biggest Haredi expert. I mean, there really are people who study this all day long and I know the economics of it inside and out and so forth. But, uh, you know, relatively layman's person uh, or person's take on this, the stick is not going to work. Um, we're not, we don't need them drafted. Why do I care if they're in the army, by the way? And why do I want to give guns out to all these people who are more loyal to their rabbi than they would possibly be to a commander or a government? I don't need them to go to the army. But what I need them to do is not to siphon off money from the government. A, a, a very major Israeli newscaster said this week, um, Galit, uh, Galit Gottlieb, um, said that they're sucking our blood. They're sucking out our blood. She said it on the news. Um, and she <laughs> she's had a very bad week. I think she was suspended and she was lambasted. But at the end of the day, she's not entirely wrong, to be honest. That's the unfortunate thing of what happened to her. The current, the current negotiations about the, 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 the uh, budget, they're a travesty. What they've wanted is to restore government funding of Haredi schools, which had previously been predicated on their teaching English and math, and they want it not to be predicated on teaching English and math. That's an abomination. You cannot expect Israel to remain a first world country when, by the way, 50% of the first graders in Jerusalem are now Haredi, right? You can't. You can't expect us to remain a, a world, a world, Western world leading country if a huge swath of the people here don't know any math and can't read English. So what we have to do is we have to entice them to join the labor force. We have to entice them through government subsidies and so forth to get more of a Western education. We have to stop capitulating to their desire of the, not the desire of the, of the street, I don't think, but the desire of the leadership to kind of go backwards and backwards and backwards to maintain some huge distance between them and Israeli society. That, it seems to me, is, is immoral, and it fundamentally undermines both them and Israel. There is a way out of this, but only with them not having the hold over the government that they right now do. They weren't in the last government, recall. They were not in the, in the Bennett-Lapid government, and a lot of good things happened. They opened up another another pathway for Kashrut certification. They did impose uh, requirements for core curriculum on Haredi funding and so on and so forth. Um, that's the way it seems to me one has to go. I don't have any vested interest in them not living their lives religiously the way they want to. 
that's totally fine. Do whatever you want. But work, pay taxes, serve the country in some other way, and stop being only on the receiving end. We are two minutes to closing time. So uh, I'm gonna ask you this, which is probably could, could take an hour to answer, but I'm gonna ask you to do it briefly. Um, Bruce Jacobson asks, can you share a bit about your experience as an American who made Aliyah to Israel and more particularly how you and others with similar background are or were viewed by native born Israelis when participating in the political discourse? What was the last part, the last phrase? But well, this is the one you can answer briefly. How do Israelis see you when you take part in political discourse as, a, as an mm -hmm. Anglo made Aliyah? We are immigrants like my grandmother was an immigrant, meaning my grandmother who came from Odessa in the early years of the 1900s always spoke English with, uh, with an accent. Uh, at her most comfortable moments was speaking Yiddish and reading Yiddish, even though her Hebrew was fluent, her English was fluent and so on and so forth. She was always an immigrant. My parents were a non-immigrant uh, generation, and we are an immigrant generation, and my kids are not an immigrant generation. But I have to say, so we're, we're commonly seen as immigrants, both for positive and negative. Some people think, well, good for you, you came. And some people think, oh, yeah, more Americans, you know, whatever, look at the neighborhoods they live in, look what they do, and this and that, other thing, which I don't really care about. But I've never heard anybody say, you shouldn't be involved in the political process the way that you are, because you're, quote, unquote, just an American. That I have not heard at all. There may be other immigrant groups, by the way, who are subjected to that. That's quite possible. I wouldn't be surprised if this newest round of Russian and Ukrainian immigrants is being much less hospitably welcomed for a whole array of reasons we won't go into now. But we have had an extraordinary experience of being very welcomed here, I have to say. And uh, the, the thoroughly Israeli students that I work with at Shalem College, that's never, it's obvious that I'm an American immigrant, but that's just never been an issue at all. We felt um, this is a country of immigrants. This is, by the way, also a country of immigrants, the vast majority of whom came from non-democratic um, countries, where the democracy has never skipped a beat. We've never missed an election. We've never had an election that's been contested. There's been no violence at polls. The, the, the democracy has worked phenomenally well, even with a country that's built on the backs of people that came from places where there was no democracy. Immigration here is an unbelievably miraculous phenomenon for all of the warts and all of the mistakes on it. Uh, the common phrase is, you know, Israel loves immigration. It does just doesn't like immigrants. Um, we didn't have that because we were very fortunate. We came a middle-class American family. We had a little bit of money. We could buy a house. We weren't, you know, wondering about how we were going to make ends meet the way a lot of Israelis struggle to do. We've been very blessed in that way. But at least in terms of my experience and the experience of our neighbors and our friends and so on and so forth, We've actually been very deeply welcomed. And I think people appreciate very much the fact that there's people actually who believe enough in this place to leave a very comfortable life in American suburbia and come here to a place where the language is not your native language, where the jargon is not your native jargon. You have to learn the system all over again, try to make a life here. I think we are actually just the latest wave of, well, not we've been here a while already, but we were then the latest wave of a phenomenon that made the country and sustains the country. Danny, I think we could probably have a keep this conversation going for uh, uh, an hour, um, but I'm trying to stick to time. I really want to thank you, not just My for pleasure. this, but for um, a really wonderful, a typically wonderful essay. Uh, I've never read anything uh, by you that isn't um, at a very high standard. Oh, I'll send you some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and um, and I want to thank uh, I, I really want to thank our audience for its uh, engagement with what we're trying to do. 
Sapir is subtitled Ideas for a Thriving Jewish Future. We're lucky to have the Maimonides Fund um, uh, publish this work. It's available at sapirjournal.org. Uh, so please interest your friends in, in what we're doing. Um, and we look forward to many more conversations with other contributors and many more um, questions from, a, from an engaged, um, thoughtful and caring audience.